Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free, <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Movie Oubliette, the transcontinental podcast for forgotten fantastical films with me, Conrad, self-isolating in Cambridge, UK. And me, Dan, ecstatically grinning from meeting one of the hosts of my favourite podcast, Weekly Planet, driving a tram in Melbourne, Australia. Oh. We focus (laughs) on fantastic cinema, sci-fi, horror and fantasy for the most part because for escapist entertainment, we love global pandemics, corrupt politicians and taking up cannibalism and 80s punk hairstyles. (laughs) But do we, do we really, Conrad? Do we? I don't think we do, no. So how are you, Dan, in these strange times? Yeah, it is very strange times. Uh, Australia is only just feeling the brunt of the pandemic that is sweeping the world. Uh, things are starting to close. Schools are closing. A lot of people are losing their jobs. Uh, it's very, very unfortunate. Uh, how about you, Conrad? It's starting to get serious here. I mean, we're now in lockdown. Businesses, restaurants, cinemas, all that kind of thing. It's all mm. closed now. So, yeah, but it's a bright and sunny day outside. And you go outside and people are walking their dogs. And you just think... If this is the apocalypse, it's not what I was expecting. Yeah, no, exactly. I was talking to my wife the other day. I, you know, outside it should be a desert landscape. It should be acid yeah. rain and no water and food. We should be fashioning weapons out of <laughs> tools or something. But no, it's just a normal day. It is, yeah. And on a lighter note, as I mentioned in my uh, intro, I did meet one of the hosts from the podcast, The Weekly Planet, which is an Australian podcast. Ah. He is a co-host of the podcast, so he doesn't really do it full-time, and his full-time job is actually driving a tram. And I've never oh, seen cool. him before, and I <laughs> the other day I got on his tram. And I was just like <laughs> grinning from ear to ear because I was uh, complete disbelief that I was actually on a tram that he was driving. So, of course, I had to go up to him. You know, I said, oh, are you Nick Mason? He's like, I am. And I was like, oh, I love your podcast. And he replied to me, well, I love you. He's <laughs> like so Amazing. His his personality is amazing. So anyway, <laughs> shout out to The Weekly Planet. Oh, that's excellent. I hope you kept a respectable distance from him at all times. Well, there's there's a glass on, <laughs> between the tram driver and the, the passengers. So yeah, I, I think oh, I, I was respectful. Good. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's great. I wonder if he could be a guest on our show. Maybe, maybe. I'll, I'll look out for him next time I commute. <laughs> <laughs> Get on a tram. Yeah. <laughs> Well, fortunately, we have plenty of mailbag delivered through the safe means of digital social media. Oh, yes. So from Jake Armistead on Twitter, I don't know if you guys take recommendations, but I think you both would get something out of The Lair of the White Worm. I don't know if you've heard of that movie. I have heard of it, but I have not seen it. No. So this is directed by Ken Russell who we've had a brush with before, he of Altered States. And this is a a 1988 British horror film loosely based on the Bram Stoker novel of the same name. And it stars Hugh Grant. So... Oh, okay. (laughs) Is this this another Cemetery Man situation? I think it could be. (laughs) So I would be quite interested to check that one out. So... Thank you for recommending it, Jake. Yes. Uh, Bethany Dunn said, It would be pretty cool to hear you guys talk about the Munchie movies. Oh. 
I had no idea what she was talking about. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that at all. I'd looked it up and apparently there's a whole series uh, and they look like one of the sort of low-rent straight-to-video Gremlins rip-offs that oh, came out in the 80s. Like Critters and Ghoulies, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So this is a 1987 comedy horror film directed by Gremlins editor Tina Hirsch. So it's like... Oh God. <laughs> Literally a ripoff. <laughs> yeah, it really is. But there were sequels, Munchie and Munchie Strikes Back. And so, yeah. Oh, if, cool. If we find that down there in the oubliette, maybe we could drag that out at some point. Yeah. It'd be interesting. And finally, from Cold Crash Pictures, hello, Serge. Hey, Serge. Hope you're isolating. <laughs> yes, he said that he is happily self-isolating at home. And he managed to catch up with Howard the Duck at last. <laughs> Originally, he was quite disappointed to find that it wasn't on Disney+. Plus. Oh, <laughs> he yes, posted yes. this message saying, it's not there, cowards! <laughs> <laughs> uh, but finally, he rendered his view on it and said, I'm convinced there is a good movie hiding somewhere inside Howard the Duck. It's got an enthusiastic soft spot for outsiders and gives the hero a legitimately difficult choice to make at the end. I just wish it had left out all the stupid duck puns and all the freaky sex stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sums it up pretty succinctly. Yes. Yeah, I think he's nailed it for sure. <laughs> so yeah, if anybody else out there wants to render an opinion on a film that we've looked at, either today's movie or a previous movie, please do let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Yes, please, please give us an email or a message on any of our socials. Mm. So the shelves are bare in every single store I go into, but thankfully in the oubliette we are still well stocked with questionable movies. Dan, which one are we going to try today? Well, I will just go and fetch it. Oh, whoa, there's some sort of car chase going on. Mad Max style. <laughs> wow, whoa, watch out for that one. Whoa, I've got it. I'm coming back. Whatever the plan is, make it snappy. Wow, it's a adrenaline pumping down there. I know, they weren't even wearing seat belts. Dangerous. <laughs> so what have you got for us? So the movie I have for us today is the 2008 sci-fi action movie Doomsday. Wow, I don't think either of us have seen this one, have we? No. So that makes it a... Double blind. Yes, indeed, it is a double blind. Uh, this movie is directed by Neil Marshall mm. from Dog Soldiers and Descent fame. Mm. Also written by Neil Marshall. It stars Rona Mitra, Bob Hoskins, uh, Alexander Siddig, Craig Conway, and the ever-wonderful uh, Malcolm McDowell makes an appearance ah. as well. And what happens in it? Well, it's funny you should ask. Uh, it's seeing as... <laughs> It is a very viral, heavy climate these days with uh, with the coronavirus. Yeah. We did decide to do a also a viral outbreak movie. Mm. This film starts in the year 2008 as a viral outbreak dubbed the Reaper virus has ravaged Scotland. Mm. In order to contain the spread, the British government builds a wall isolating Scotland from the rest of the UK. Flash forward to the year 2035 and the Reaper virus has reappeared in England. In a desperate attempt to find a cure, the government sends an elite team of blank cardboard characters <laughs> led by the always unyielding Eden Sinclair into the infected Scotland. Mm -hmm. Their goal is to find the elusive scientist Kane, the key to ending the nightmare. Along the way, they encounter anarchist punks, medieval knights, and a fast and furious car chase to the finish line. Mm. Will they succeed, or will they be turned into haggis to feed the Glaswegian rabble-rousers? <laughs> a fate worse than death. Yes, haggis. We will find out after the break. And we are back. 
let's talk Doomsday. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Is this movie a glimpse of what's to come, Conrad? Wow. What were your initial thoughts? Well, I was quite keen to see this one because I was a huge fan of Neil Marshall's first two movies, Dog Soldiers, which was a kind of scrappy bargain basement British werewolf movie mm -hmm. with a bunch of squaddies being attacked by werewolves, and The Descent, which was a real nail-biting, claustrophobic monster thriller with an all-female cast, and it was beautifully done and really atmospheric. Yes. So, yeah, I was quite keen to see this, and I'd never seen it before, hadn't even heard of it, to be honest. It's his follow-up film to The Descent, so he had a bigger budget to play with. Yes. He wrote it himself. So I thought, we're in for a real treat here. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, I had seen... Uh, the only movies I've seen of his are The Descent and the next movie after this one, Centurion. Oh, I yeah. enjoyed The Descent. Fantastic movie. Mm. Even the sequel, which isn't done by him, wasn't as bad as everyone says it is. Oh. Centurion, on the other hand, I did not enjoy. I oh. thought it was a Hollywood interpretation of the Jacobites and, and the Romans in early Britain. And it is, yeah, very Hollywoody. Lots of stylistic fights that would never, ever, ever happen in Roman times. Oh. Um, so I wasn't sure what this movie was going to be like. And watching it, I didn't actually realize that he had done Centurion. And I thought watching Doomsday, wow, this is quite similar to Centurion, especially when they're in the medieval Middle Ages <laughs> yeah. uh, scenes for some bizarre reason. Everyone's dressed up as knights. And I thought, yeah, this is very, very similar to Centurion in the, all the worst ways. Right. And then, of course, I found out <laughs> he had actually directed Centurion. Right. Um, yeah, this movie's odd, isn't it? It's an odd representation of the future mm. of a land, Scotland, which has has been ravaged by this disease and, you know, a good 30 years later, everyone that is alive in Scotland are immune, I guess. Mm. And then they take on these different cultural influences. So we've got the, the punky <laughs> anarchistic ravages in Glasgow that are all dressed up as punks and goths for some strange reason with yeah. mohawks and colour hair. <laughs> yeah. And then you go further north and you have the Knights of the Round Table <laughs> in a castle riding horseback, swinging swords around. It's a strange mix. Really strange, yeah. So Neil Marshall had this vision of a knight on horseback with a sword being faced down by a commando with a machine gun uh -huh. and thought, I've got to turn that into a movie. All right. Um, and this is the result, yeah. So his vision for what will happen if there is a uh, some sort of apocalypse, I think... It's a virus in this case. It could easily just have been anything else. It's just a backdrop to the story, really. Yeah. If a whole lot of people are wiped out and society starts again north of Hadrian's Wall, <laughs> all of a sudden Scotland will regress for some reason to the 80s. Yes. In every way. <laughs> so they're dressing as punks. They're listening to 80s music. They're putting on live shows with dirt bikes and mm -hmm. <laughs> pole dancing and cannibalism. Yeah, I just couldn't figure out why this would be the way that society would go in that circumstance. But yeah. fine. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's one of those films where you just have to just suspend all disbelief and just accept it. I mean, I sort of punk similar to, you know, in, in Hook, where he, he meets the Lost mm. Boys uh, and they're all dressed up as, yeah. I guess, <laughs> 90s punks yeah. with red hair and, and studs and stuff. It's kind of that sort of similar vibe. It's just they've decided on a stylistic look and they just went with it. But yeah. uh, it wasn't realistic in terms of a, a post-apocalyptic sort of environment. Like, no. where did they get those clothes from? Where did they get the studs and the hair dyes and, and, <laughs> and the earrings and the, the chains? And I mean, it's that's not the sort of thing you would just find lying around. No. So, yeah, uh, completely unbelievable. No, somebody would have hoarded it by now, <laughs> judging by what, what's been going on in the stores here and everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, yeah, exactly. although I guess maybe hair dye would be the last thing to go. I don't know. Maybe, maybe. <laughs>
Maybe all they had left was hair dye and accessories, so that's yeah. what they went with. <laughs> I mean, you did mention that the virus is almost not even part of the movie. Mm. Like, even when they go, so the elite team of scientists go beyond the wall and they've got all this gear on and gas masks and all, everything, and as soon as they get captured, masks are off and they don't even talk about the possibility of getting the virus. No. Uh, and so it, it just seemed like a missed opportunity. They could have made it a lot more tense in the film, constantly being aware that they could catch this disease, but it wasn't spoken about again. No. And they went the rest of the film with no protective gear. No. So, I don't know, it just seemed like a plot point only. Yes. And that was it. There was no sort of fear. No, and it's not even resolved properly, because when they eventually finish, I know we shouldn't talk about the so soon but when they sort of go back to this plot of you know you went in there to collect this cure you've kind of forgotten about it and then it doesn't even make any sense anymore <laughs> so and that they don't seem to be worried about the people that have come out they're not sort of hosing them down or no. standing a meter apart and doing namaste there's nothing they're just no. sort of wandering about free to go anywhere yeah and <laughs> even the ending Nothing kind of gets tied up. No. They kind of built the successor of the prime minister up like this big, bad, evil guy yeah. that was going to turn his back on his country. But then they'd still give her the girl that is immune and they could study her blood work, I guess. Uh, and that, what? That's it? <laughs> what? What? I, I just it just seemed like what was the point of all of this? No, and I didn't even know what the issue was because they seem to try to create an ethical dilemma there where the only remaining soldier from this crack team is arguing with the main character Sinclair saying, What you're just going to hand her over? And she says, Oh yeah, this was just a job to me and I haven't got any bargaining chips left. And I think, but what what are you bargaining for? Yeah. What's the issue here? This is why you went in. Yes. Why is this suddenly a dramatic ethical dilemma. This is what you're doing. What, what, what's the problem? I don't get it. <laughs> I mean, one thing we should talk about is how derivative this movie is of Escape from New York. Yes. If you summarise the plot of the movie, hard as nails nihilist with an eye patch is sent into a walled-in place where society has completely broken down in order to rescue something that an evil politician needs. And then when he gets back, undermines the politician with a secret recording and walks away mm -hmm. watching the chaos unfold. It's Escape from New York. Yeah. I mean, even the opening titles are in the John Carpenter font. Yeah. It's Escape from New York. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, the biggest influences of this movie, and Neil Marshall has admitted this, Escape from New York and Mad Max, which mm. is pretty damn obvious, especially in the last scene. Oh, yeah. Which is just a complete <laughs> ripoff of Mad Max. Yeah. <laughs> you might as well just have called this movie Doomsday, Mad Max 4 or something. Yeah. Because <laughs> it was so, so similar. I mean, it was beyond homage. It was just blatantly just ripping off Mad Max. Yeah. Uh, there was nothing that was different, really. Not at all. <laughs> yeah, there's just, there are so many parts of this film that independently sound like a great idea. But when you stitch it all together, it makes no sense at all. No. And I, I kind of feel like Neil Marshall would have had this by what you said about the knights on horseback against a person with a machine gun. He just had all of these independent ideas and he just found a way to somehow tie them all together. But it oh, really didn't work. And I did feel like there were lots of missed opportunities. Um, mm. Her eye, for instance, she doesn't really utilize the fact that her eye is a camera. Yeah. She uses the record stuff. She does it at the start. She does it at the end, and there's, I think, halfway through she uses it. But it, it's something that I wish she'd used more as, you know, she's got this thing that no one else has. Yeah. Why, why doesn't she use it mm. to escape things or... Uh, I don't know. It just seemed like another missed opportunity. It should have been a major plot point. It's set up at the beginning when you sort of introduce how much of a hard-ass she is and how yes. nihilistic she is and just very focused on achieving the mission at any cost, no matter what the collateral damage might be. Sure. Um, but she never uses it again. There's never a major moment where that saves her. No. It's just at the beginning and at the end, and that's it. Yeah. You're right, it's never mentioned again. Yeah. There's so many missed opportunities. Yeah. I wish they'd gone back 
to the wall because they made a big deal of the wall being automated security with this gun that just shoots everything. Mm. I wish they'd gone back to the wall and somehow had to find a way to get past that security. That would have been a really cool thing to happen. Yeah. But instead they just keep driving to nowhere. Yeah. Just driving away from the punks. Yeah. There wasn't a sense of them going anywhere. They were just kind of driving away. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And it's set up again as another really great set piece that you could return to. Yeah. They show how lethal the guns are, but they never go back to it, no. which is really odd. And ah. it's a huge set and it's really impressive. I, I mean, it has to be said, the production... It's a pretty good production because they made the most of a £17 million budget. Sure. Because they shot largely in South Africa. So like District 9 and Chappie and other films that are filmed down there, they get a significant bang for their buck. Mm. So they've got huge, complicated crowd scenes and really complex car chases with real practical stunts going on and massive sets like The Wall with guns on it. Sure. And it's really impressive and it looks great because the cinematographer and the cameraman are shooting the shit out of it. I mean, it looks great. It does. But it's all for nothing. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, any still from the movie looks amazing and it would have made a wonderful trailer Mm. that would have enticed people. And, yeah, like you said, the crowd scenes had 700 extras or something like that and all of the stunts are done practically, which is amazing Mm. because it looks amazing. Having the APC flipped, they actually did that in real life. It's not CGI. There's hardly any CGI. It's all practical. All the car scenes were all practical. And you can tell because it all has weight and danger Mm. to it. It's shocking and violent and thrilling to watch. And it looks great as well. I mean, in Mm. terms of lighting and sort of sense of movement. It just, it was believable because it was real. Yeah. But one thing, one major thing I had with these scenes that otherwise would have looked amazing, these action scenes, is God damn, the editing was annoying. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a child with attention deficit disorder just hammering the button on the (laughs) editing keyboard, isn't it? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I mean, in the first battle scene with the armoured vehicles and the punks attacking them, Mm. either it was just a bunch of action shots followed by a bunch of reaction shots, but they just didn't quite stitch up together. Mm. So they would shoot in a particular angle and then they would show the result of that, a bunch of punks getting shot. But it just didn't quite look like they were in the same area. No. (laughs) And so I never really saw what was going on. (laughs) No. So it was quite hard to follow the action. Yeah. Which just seems like... (laughs) Isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? (laughs) Well, ideally in an action scene, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and some of the fight scenes, like you said, so many cuts. Mm. There would have been at least, I don't know, three cuts a second. It was just strobing almost. (laughs) I couldn't even focus on what was going on. No, not at all. Neil Marshall has said since then in an interview that that's the one thing about the movie that he regrets is that he has over-edited it and he is absolutely right. Yes, <laughs> it's certainly has. not something that he did on his Game of Thrones episodes, Blackwater and the Watchers on the Wall. Those are amazing uh-huh. episodes. So he can do this. Yeah. He can do it really well. But here, his third movie, big budget, all the toys. And I think maybe just got too enthusiastic with that editing button yeah. in the digital age. Because it's a shame because I, I watched some of the behind the scenes and the main character played by Rona Mitra, she is from Hollow Man. Yes. She is the neighbor that gets, gets raped, raped by, by Kevin, Kevin Bacon. Bacon. Yeah, amazing. No, I was so <laughs> surprised to see her in this as the lead. But anyway, um, it's a shame about the editing because Rona Mitra in behind the scenes she put in 110% in terms of training Mm. um, getting her physique looking exactly right and learning all the fight choreography and doing quite a few stunts herself as well Mm. she looked really great 
But in those action scenes, you can't even tell whose limb belongs to what character. There's just so many <laughs> close-ups, so much shaky cam. Oh, it's infuriating to watch. I just wanted one wide shot just for like two seconds, possibly. Yeah. But no, it's just cut, 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 cut. Which cut. is a real shame because usually that's used to cover up the fact that your performance and your action isn't actually that good. Yeah. So you cut it to hell so that you can't tell how lame it is. Exactly. And yet... It probably wasn't lame, yeah. which is a real shame. It wasn't. It wasn't lame at all. Like yeah. some of the fight choreography I saw her when she was training with a sword fighting. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. She put in a lot of work. Mm. And none of it's in evidence at all. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing I wanted to mention is that this film proves that the shadow of aliens looms large over every single action movie, science fiction action movie, I should say, that has been produced since then. Because this movie borrows so heavily from aliens. And it's not actually an influence that I think Neil Marshall mentions. But it's so clear. I mean, from the first encounter in the APCs that you mention, it's essentially just an amalgam of various beats from the first encounter with the aliens in Aliens. Mm. You've got one craft that's caused to crash by a stowaway enemy who sneaks up on the pilot from behind and kills them. Mm -hmm. The other one gets an enemy on the roof smashing through the windscreen who's dislodged by frantic braking and then run over. Mm -hmm. The difficulty is in this is that it's a human being that you see get run over, not an HR Giga alien. So it's really icky yeah. and disturbing. Yeah. But more than that, some of the lines from Aliens are in the movie, word for word. So you've got things like, check those corners, and we've got a live one, which doesn't even make any sense because I haven't seen any dead ones, so I don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes the reproductions of the very American dialogue from the Marines is really undermined by the Britishness of the cast. So instead of Vazquez, who's laying down suppressing fire, shouting to the other characters, whatever you're going to do, do it fast, we've got the British guy doing the same thing, saying, whatever the plan is, make it snappy. <laughs> 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 but surely it must have been a direct influence. It must have been. Oh, without a doubt. Like, I mean, this whole movie just seems like a, an homage to other better movies. Yeah. <laughs> like, there isn't a lot in this movie that is that original. No, or not at all. original at all. <laughs> it borrows a lot. Mm. When did 28 Days Later come out? Because there were a lot of similarities to that as well. Yeah. I mean, purely uh, the UK setting, yeah. a viral outbreak. I don't know. Yeah, it's early noughties and that one is cited as an influence on the movie, but he wanted to make it so that the people who catch the virus aren't transformed into running zombies. They're sure. just killed. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the setup and the visual style of it are still heavily influenced by 28 Days Later, or more so 28 Weeks Later, which came afterwards of course mm, sure sure i did hear another influence on this movie was the movie warriors oh. i've never actually seen it no me neither but i think that's the idea of the punks mm. it's similar to street gangs and warriors yeah but please answer for me why on earth would a generation of people growing up in a devastated scotland post-plague adopt 80s iconography when they have no parents to infuse them with this stuff and listen to endless... I mean, it's a great soundtrack. You've got Kings of the Wild Frontier from Adam and the Ants and then you've got Good Thing by the Fine Young Cannibals, which is just silly. It's just on the nose in terms of the name of the band. Sure. You'd have to know that, though, because they never mention it in the song. Yeah. It's just stupid. But you've got yeah. Susie and the Banshees and you've got... Well... The final car chase, I think, is somewhat undermined by Frankie Goes to Hollywood's Two Tribes Go to War, but... Yeah, sure. <laughs> why are they listening to all this 80s music in 2035 after a plague has decimated society? Where is their point of reference? It makes no sense to me at all. <laughs> it doesn't. No, no, it doesn't. It's a purely a stylistic choice. Of course. It yeah. looked good and they just went with it. I mean, I, I'm just surprised that there are only young people in this mm. post-apocalyptic Scotland, apart from Kane, yes. who was the only old person... <laughs> 
There's no children. It's everyone's in their mid twenties, and that's it. Yeah. Uh, why? <laughs> Obviously, they're the only ones that are immune, and everybody else is gone. I suppose that could be true. That could work that way. Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. I mean, odd character-wise with this movie, I found it very confusing in terms of. First of all, there's no character development. No. Everyone is completely blank. I've mixed them all up. I don't know anyone's names no. apart from Sinclair and Kane. And every character seems so expendable as well. Mm. They show up for 10 minutes and gets killed immediately. <laughs> and then they're gone. And I don't even feel anything because there is, there's no character development anyway. And so I kind of felt no threat of danger throughout the film because people were constantly getting killed constantly yeah and even when they finally get to Kane who is supposed to be the solution to all their problems he ends up being the bad guy but <laughs> they just escape from him and he just goes oh well I'll just sit in my castle and then suddenly <laughs> the sole character which you thought was the original bad guy who has been absent from the film for like 40 minutes or something shows up at the end to do a last minute car chase yeah uh, what is going on with these characters I don't know no you're right that everybody is so expendable especially all of the crack team of British soldiers I cannot tell them apart I'm sorry no. and when Adrian Lester character who dies in slow-mo platoon style and you've got this stirring music and Rona Mitra looking at him I think you're supposed to feel something but I'm looking at him thinking I didn't even know he was still alive <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my yeah. favourite one on that score is a guy called Joshua who shows up. He's played by Martin Compston, who's a great actor. He's been in things like Mary Queen of Scots. He shows up around about the time that they're about to take the Hogwarts Express to Malcolm McDumbledore's castle. Yeah. And he's in Lincoln Green. He's got a bow and arrow. It seems like he knows the daughter of Cain, who ends up being the immune person that they hand over to the authorities at the end. Yes. I think they know each other. And then he dies the next shot. Yeah. Like he gets killed. I know. So he, I think he's in the movie for a total of a minute, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> Should have worn a red shirt, really. It's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's the problem with this film. So you don't get invested in any of the characters. Um, no. Even the main character, Sinclair, she is just blank. Yeah, the whole film. Like she shows zero emotions apart from maybe at the end and a little bit at the start, but there's just no complexity in her character. She's just a hard-nosed, badass lady that gets jobs done and yeah. At the end, she joins the punks. Yeah. For no reason. For no reason. At all. <laughs> no, in a scene that was added later because apparently test audiences didn't like the original ending, which just saw her walking away from the helicopter and you didn't know what happened next. Okay. But the added ending makes no sense at all. So <laughs> I don't understand. Yeah. I have to say, Rona Mitra's performance didn't help the situation, I don't think. I don't like criticising actors because you never know whether it's the material they've been given or the way they've been edited, mm. that they're actually really good and it's just that the way that it's come out, it hasn't done them any service. But she just seems to be constantly delivering every single line in a peevish monotone through lip gloss mm. and that's it. Mm. That's the entirety of her performance. There's no build to it, there are no peaks, there are no troughs. She's just, as you say, flat all the way through. Yeah. But also flat in a way that isn't compelling. Mm. So like Kurt Russell, a snake Pliskin, is the same sardonic, dry character all the way through that movie. And he doesn't really change from one moment sure. from the beginning to the end. But he's charismatic, he's witty, and he's fun to be with. And you kind of love him, even though he's a bit of a selfish arsehole. And you want him to succeed I didn't feel that way about Sinclair. No. She just seems sort of pouty and pissed off. Yeah. Like she had better things to do all the time. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, people were dying left, right and centre and she was just not reacting no. at all. She just moved on. Mm. Or they would ask, oh, how's Blah that was driving the APC? And she just says, oh, she's dead. 
and they just move on. They don't criticize her for her coldness. Yeah. They just move on and she moves on and uh, yeah, there's no sense of humanity in this film. No. Which is a real shame because even Snake Plissken, the reason why he undermines the president at the end of Escape from New York is because he senses that he does not care about the sacrifices that have been made to rescue him. So that's why he does it. Sure. So there is a human being in there yeah. and you kind of like him for it. Whereas the end of this movie... I don't know what we're supposed to think about Sinclair at all. She just seems like a bit of a dick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, in terms of the best actors in this movie, Bob Hoskins and uh, Malcolm McDowell, mm. both of them were great. They were, they actually felt like characters. Malcolm McDowell, holy crap, he was such an injection of life and some sort of semblance of threat. Mm. But his appearance is so short. Yeah. And he doesn't go to the end. They just escape and he just stays in his castle. Yeah. I, I, I don't understand. They <laughs> underutilized him. Well, there is one scene where Rona Mitra and Malcolm McDowell seem to be engaging in a non-acting competition, though. That scene where she's in a cell and he's talking to her. Sure. <laughs> You've got Malcolm McDowell gnawing the scenery with contempt, Mitra just doing her flat monotone like she's pissed off the whole time. And they're both staring blankly in the same direction breaking the 180-degree rule. You've just got these shots of them both staring screen left. Oh, right. And I'm thinking, where are they in relation to each other? What's going on? I don't understand. This scene is rubbish. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But yeah, Malcolm McDowell's character is great fun when you get to him. He does inject a lot of energy into the movie. But again, I really do not understand why this virologist who was supposed to be finding a cure decided that the best thing to do was hold up in a Scottish castle. He gives the excuse that he knew the government would be watching via satellite and they wouldn't look at a castle. Fine. But do you really have to go full bore into medieval land? Because he cosplays pretty hard, <laughs> all the way down to drippy candles, falconry, chainmail armor, gladiatorial battles, telling his guards to take them away. Yeah. <laughs> it just seems like he's really gone in on this full bore. It's yeah. pretty impressive. <laughs> I know. And he's not, everyone else is in chainmail and armor, and he's wearing like a velvet robe or something. Yeah. <laughs> like, where, did, where did you find this, these costumes? <laughs> The one thing that I really do love as a cute little detail in all of those scenes, though, is that it's obviously still like a heritage tourist site oh, that yes. he's living in. So in the background, you can see there's a sign that says gift shop oh, next to one yeah. of the doors. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think there is one scene where they're, they're running down the corridor and there's there's an illuminated exit sign yeah. <laughs> above the door. Yeah. Which they go through and obviously he doesn't follow them because they've got through the exit now, so that's it, game over. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now it's time for Random Trivia. So, Dan, what fascinating morsel of trivia have you rescued from the quarantine zone today? <laughs> well, did you know that the actor that plays the Prime Minister in this movie, uh, Alexander Siddig, and Malcolm McDowell are actually related? So, Alexander really? Siddig, <laughs> Alexander Siddig is Malcolm McDowell's nephew in real life. So... <laughs> Wow. I genuinely did not know that. I knew they were both in Star Trek. Yeah. I thought that's what you were going to say. No. But they're related. They're related. Wow. <laughs> that's so cool. I mean, they don't have a scene together in this movie, but, you know, still would have been nice to catch up at the uh, rap party. Yeah. They didn't have a scene together in Star Trek, I don't think, either, because oh. uh, Alexander Siddick was in Deep Space Nine and Malcolm was the guy that killed... Kirk in, is it The Undiscovered Country? No, Generations. Okay. Yeah, Generations. I did not know they were related. That's amazing. <laughs> Great trivia. Yeah. I can sum up this movie as just like a series of what Neil Marshall thought were very cool scenes that he wanted to have and then just somehow just stitched them all together. Yeah. Um, there's just a lot of almost gratuitous violence, like just mm. over-the-top violence for no reason really and often some nudity that was unnecessary, like they didn't need oh, to be nude. Yeah. 
This is the second movie we've seen recently where there's been a naked woman in a bathtub for no reason in the first 10 minutes. Yeah. What was yeah. that? <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I, I felt uneasy almost in some of the scenes because it was it was just almost too much. Hmm. And I mean, I like gory movies, but this film seemed almost gory for the sake of gory. Like, it seemed unnecessary. Yeah. Well, the whole cannibalism show that Sol puts on just looks like a 14-year-old's wet dream with dirt biking and pole dancers scantily clad, bending over and having their asses slapped in time with the music. and, And then somebody gets eaten alive and you think... Yeah, it does feel a little bit gratuitous, even though I think the film is all supposed to be in fun. You know, it's just supposed to be ridiculous and you're not supposed to take it seriously. But at the same time, some of it has a bit of a bitter taste to it. Yeah. I mean, if it was that over-the-top, almost satirical Mm. approach, it could have been quite cool. If they had... So Soul, if he was even more over the top, if he was mm. played by, I don't know, Gary Oldman or Jim Carrey or something, just ridiculous <laughs> over the top character, that could have been quite fun. Yeah. But uh, it was still kind of that middle ground. It was gritty, but not too serious for its own good at times. Like maybe if it had a little bit more humor in the script or in the characters, it would have been a much more enjoyable ride, but it felt mm. a little bit glued together in, in the hope that it all makes sense at the end. Yeah. Which it didn't. <laughs> You're right. I think what he was aiming for, a very conscious homage to all of the influences that he talks about. So you're supposed to think this is a post-apocalyptic 70s, 80s movie, but infused with the 28 days later shooting and editing style. Mm. And he thought this would be a blast, very self-conscious. And he was disappointed with the reception the film got because it barely got back 22 million in its theatrical run. Mm. And I think the critical response was sort of lukewarm, half and half. I think it's sort of 60% on Rotten Tomatoes or something. Mm. And I think he felt that Grindhouse, which does something similar, was much more successful. And he thought it was a shame that people didn't accept Doomsday on that level. But Grindhouse makes itself very clear what it is from the get-go. Doomsday does not. It's just a bunch of scenes from other things recreated in a crazy, over-edited style, loosely chained together by dialogue scenes where people speak to each other just in exposition bingo. Yes. Like their sentences don't even lead to each other you just have things like you're the scientists who were assigned to investigate the virus she says when she walks into the room where the scientists are and you think well is that a natural way to speak to people (laughs) i don't think so you're talking to us aren't you you're talking to the audience yeah people just don't speak to each other in a natural way at all they're just Mm. disconnected bits of exposition and they don't respond to each other they're not listening they're not a group of listeners it's not active Mm. listening we're seeing going on yes yes, and i think the problem i hear in the dialogue is the problem i see in the whole movie it's just disconnected chunks of stuff put together for no reason. And when you actually analyse what they've done, they've gone into Scotland to find a cure for this virus. They get captured by punks, they get away, they find the castle with Malcolm McDowell, he hasn't got a cure, they go away, they get chased by punks, they go away, and then they go back and hand over one person who's immune. That's it. Yeah. That's the story. And nobody has changed. Yeah, (laughs) I know. And even the girl, like... They could have handed anyone. Mm. They could have handed any of the punks. Why did they have to hand that girl? Yeah. Like, she's going to get tested on, cut up probably. Mm. I mean, why? Yeah. (laughs) Why why not just get one of the dumbass punks to be experimented on? Yeah. (laughs) It kind of diminished the importance of the girl Mm. as well because she was unlike any of the other survivors. Mm. My biggest downfall with this movie, I can accept a bad plot, I can accept bad acting, I can accept cardboard characters, but if you're going to do an action movie, at least have some good action scenes. Like, I feel (laughs) like they wanted them to be good action scenes, but with the editing, and a lot of them 
were just bad ideas. Like even the car chase scene mm. at the end, there's a moment where Sol lunges into the car and it's just uh, some of the most infuriating action I've <laughs> ever seen because all you have is close-ups of him in a car just flapping around and everyone <laughs> screaming and you can't see what anything is happening and so there's no sense of threat or action or suspense. It's just, oh, I just want this to end and something to happen that I can make out. Yeah. I mean, I love the Mission Impossible movies. I love the John Wick movies. I even love the more recent Fast and Furious films because they have great action, like amazing action, like yeah. very, very well choreographed and very well played out action scenes where you can actually see what is going on. And they have the worst plots <laughs> and not existing characters, but they have great action and that's what's going for them. Mm. At least this movie could have had good action, but it just did not at all. Everything was very derivative, very cliche, and just ripping off other movies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how about the music what did you make of tyler bates's score for the film i'm pretty sure i like tyler bates usually um it was fine i didn't really notice it to be honest no i was probably more infuriating with what <laughs> i was looking at to even notice the score i don't remember anything from it there was nothing memorable i feel bad saying it but i really can't recall any any themes or any of the music at all. Oh, gosh. Well, there's one thing that stuck out to me, which was there is one cue that quite clearly is a ripoff of In the House in a Heartbeat, the most famous thematic cue from 28 Days Later right? by John Murphy. Okay. Probably because it was slapped all over the score in the temp stage. They put a temp score when they're editing usually. <sighs> and then the composer is told, do this, yeah. which is really mean, difficult situation to be in. It happens a lot, though. It does happen an awful lot, yeah. But apart from that, nothing really stuck out from me. I think originally the intention was to score it with synthesizer music. I think they wanted to go for that 80s sound, and you can hear that at the beginning. But then as the scope expands and they go on their adventures beyond the wall, it resorts to massive synthesizer plus orchestra type of sound uh, with guitars right. and everything. Tyler Bates, of course, was a guitarist for Marilyn Manson for quite some time. Uh. So he's gone on to do things like Guardians of the Galaxy because he has an ongoing relationship with James gun sure so i like his scores a lot of the time the only thing i didn't like about this one is that it was constant throughout there was never a moment of silence to create suspense in the entire movie yeah i was watching with my notepad at the ready saying right i'm just waiting for a moment when music stops yeah half an hour into the movie i gave up sure it never stopped once I hate that because it doesn't give a movie a chance to breathe or create atmosphere mm. and it smacks of a lack of confidence in your visuals and your actors and your story that you have to slather it with music to try and paper over the cracks and keep the momentum going. Yeah. Yeah. I think I wrote that down, actually, the fact that the score doesn't stop. Yeah. Oh, no, here we go. Too much music. <laughs> the scene I thought had way too much music was when they're investigating that hospital. Mm. There's so much music in it. So even when the punks suddenly appear, there's no sense of, oh, wow, I was surprised by that because the music is so at this medium level yeah. that there is no suspense at all. No. And you don't feel like something's about to jump out because it's just medium level music yeah, throughout. Yeah, constantly, yeah. So there's no atmosphere. It just feels like a montage or a trailer or a cutscene from a game or something. Yeah. It just doesn't stop at all for a moment. Yeah, I mean, they didn't even try to do the cheesy, horror movie trope of taking all the music out and having it really really quiet mm. they didn't even do that no so just wow. wall to wall <laughs> music i'm sure some of it's great music but doesn't stop <laughs> i wish some of it wasn't there <laughs> coming to you live from the movie oubliette theater it's the prestigious movie awards 
Oh, you must all be ready to start an anarchist punk riot awaiting the Moobly Awards. It's where we nominate our favourite <laughs> viral parts of the film in a number of bentley fueled categories. Best quote! My favourite quote comes from Sinclair, who, when faced with the prospect of a fight to the death with a seven-foot-tall behemoth in armour with spikes and blades all over him, she simply says, bollocks. <laughs> It's a very British response, though, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> I felt like waving a flag and cheering, quite frankly. <laughs> well, I mean, my favourite quote, it's not even my favourite quote, it's my favourite worst quote, I guess. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. It's it's when Sinclair first arrives at the wall and she's greeted by a guard and he, he welcomes her to no man's land, as he coins it, and she just asks him, why is it called that? Isn't it obvious why it's called that? It's no man's land. There's no one there. Most naughty movement. Conrad, you have mentioned uh, the similarities to Aliens. And I do feel like mm. the most naughties part of this film is the fact that Sinclair is a strong female lead. Mm-hmm. All these movies following The Matrix kind of fit into this mold. So you've got the Resident mm. Evil movies and the Underworld oh, movies, yeah. and they're all exactly the same. Yeah. Strong female lead that is just completely cold, doesn't feel anything, really badass. And yeah, the naughties was that decade for that type of character. Yeah. And it's funny because Rona Mitra actually went on to star in Underworld Rise of the Lycans. Did she? It's almost as if they saw the similarities <laughs> between Rona and, and Kate Beckinsale and just cast her in the movie <laughs> in the Underworld yeah. universe. But yeah. I agree with you. And actually the thing that I wrote down was Lara Croft is the most naughtiest thing uh, about this movie. Yes. Because Rona Mitra was hired by Eidos, Eidos, not sure how to say that, the computer game company, to play Lara Croft in publicity events in 2007 and 2008. Ah. Yeah, when she was cast in this movie. And to me, it looks as though she brought her own costume because (laughs) she looks pretty much like Lara Croft with a different hairstyle. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Best hair or costume? I think hands down the award has to go to Lee Ann Liebenberg, I think her name is. She's a South African stunt woman. Yes. And she plays Viper, Sol's significant other, who has this amazing plaited hair style where it's tight to her head with this mane coming out the back with red feathers and porcupine quills sticking out of it, black nails with red tips, a dog collar with chains on, what appears to be an alligator skin bra, although where she found an alligator in Scotland, I do not know. (laughs) And this amazing facial tattoo design in black and red. She is just so striking. I think she's the most iconic thing in the movie by far. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly the same character I wrote down as well. And I was so (laughs) disappointed when she laughs about 10 minutes in the whole movie before she's decapitated. Although (laughs) she does come back, though. (laughs) Well, yeah, in a sense. (laughs) She's in the car chase scene despite being dead, (laughs) which I think is great. And she gets killed again. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He gets bopped off uh i mean it's a very convincing dummy head though yeah that was quite grim (laughs) yeah also she is a stunt woman Mm. utilize her as a stunt woman (laughs) ever in more fight scenes don't do as many edits stunt heavy portion of the movie (laughs) favorite scene so similar to my favorite quote this is my favorite worst scene and it is the car chase scene (laughs) it is horrible it is blatant ripoff of mad max it's got the part where he jumps in the car and flaps around it's infuriating to watch (laughs) it's got exploding cars and, and cars driving off cliffs very cheesy and also when they drive through the bus it looks like the bus is just made out of one piece of cardboard or something it doesn't even look like a full bus (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't know. The scene was really yeah. annoying to watch. I know. That's exactly what I've written down as well. It's wow. intolerable. <laughs> the whole sequence. It's my favorite worst scene. And the thing that I like about it is because it's so British and he uses iconic British vehicles, although I don't think they're British made, but they're just ones that were popular in Britain in the 80s. So there's sure. a transit van and so yeah. on and so forth. It looks like Mad Max meets Hot Fuzz. Oh, right. Just sort of small scale and provincial as well, sort of tacky. Yeah, sure. I mean, the director himself described it as Mad Max meets Juliet Bravo, which was an 80s police procedural TV series on the BBC that had these really small scale tacky car chases in it okay yeah, i think he's right right so if that's what he was aiming for <laughs> he achieved it but yeah most cliched sci-fi moment i'm not sure if this is a sci-fi or action cliche but whenever you're in a boatyard in an action movie somebody somewhere is welding and i'm not entirely sure why that should be the case it's always yeah. happening there's always a shower of pretty sparks coming down and sure. here it makes no sense at all because it's night time and bob hoskins is talking to sinclair and somebody is welding i'm not sure who this nocturnal welder is wow but he's there welding away yeah yeah you gotta be certain it's a real Boatyard, you have to have a welder. <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> but it happens in sci-fi movies too. Every single spaceship dockyard has always got welding yes. going on. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> My cliche for this film, and you've said it already, the plot of this movie is the cliche of this movie. <laughs> I mean, you send an elite team into a dangerous territory to find a cure from a lab or a scientist. I mean, how many science fiction movies have that exact plot? Mm. Hundreds. And action movies yeah. as well. So <laughs> that is the cliche. You're absolutely right. And they should have been more careful because John Carpenter actually won a court case against Guy Pearce's movie Lockout. Right. Which was so close to Escape from New York that he took them to court and he won. And he won a substantial Ooh. amount of money, I think $450,000. So I think they were sailing pretty close to the wind here, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> Could have been in trouble, Neil. Oh, yeah. Favourite special effect. I've already mentioned it. It's the girl. I think her character name is actually Viper, but I don't even know whether she, mm. it's even mentioned in the movie. No. But um, played by that South African stunt woman. Uh, it's the dummy head. It's so convincing. It's uh, the most yeah. convincing dummy head I've ever seen in the movie. I didn't even know it was a dummy head until the camera pulls back. It's disgusting. Yeah, it really is. That's what I put down as well, because I particularly like, doesn't it blink at one point? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Which I think is a CG addition, but it's oh, a really good one. That's an yeah, example right. where CGI is used to enhance a practical effect. Sure. But yeah, it's really creepy that Whoa. she's blinking, because of course there's that whole thing about a decapitated head carries on living for a minute or so afterwards. Mm which mm. is not a, not a happy thought at all. Yeah. I mean, speaking of flesh, uh, as a secondary favourite effect, or rather the grossest effect in the movie, is when after they've barbecued the guy, set him on fire, mm. and then they start cutting into his flesh, it looks like roast pork. And I felt very <laughs> uncomfortable <laughs> because it looked very delicious, yeah. but I was very grossed out at the same time because it was a human being being eaten. Yeah, I've never been more glad to be vegan. Thank you, Duncan <laughs> Skiles. <laughs> I think it actually is pork. I think they got themselves a whole pig and ah. they roasted it and they served it up. Yeah. Right, Ooh. right, right. Yes. <laughs> Best sound effect. My favourite sound effect is Sinclair pushing her glass eye in. It sounds oh, like she's yes. pushing a golf ball into a jar of jelly. 
<laughs> so squishy yes. and wet and slimy. She should really get that checked out. It sounds like it's infected to me. Oh, it doesn't yeah. sound good. <laughs> I love that sound as well. But uh, I would say my favourite sound was when they flipped the APC, the armoured vehicle, and it makes this metallic sound, but it sounded like, it's almost sounded like a whale or a or walrus or something, oh. or it just had this kind of groan, like a, oh, <laughs> as it was flipped over oh. onto, its, onto its back. Great sound yeah. effect. <laughs> yeah, it gives it some character. That's cool. I didn't yeah. notice that. I mean, it was still very metallic, yeah. but I loved how they've, they've kind of mm. made it sound almost animal-like. Yeah. Most funniest scene. Uh, I mean, I don't know whether I've just got a sick sense of humour, but... My funniest part of the film was when the guard is talking to Sinclair about the automated security and there's a shot of this giant gun on the wall. Oh. The next shot is a little cute little bunny just frolicking around on the ground <laughs> and then it just gets obliterated with a flurry of bullets. It just gets shredded. It's not even an ounce of a rabbit anymore. It's, yeah. And... <laughs> I just thought that was hilarious for some reason. <laughs> That's exactly what I wrote down as well. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I was wetting myself laughing because it's so on the nose as well. It's like a Monty Python cutaway. It's like, these guns annihilate every living thing. Yeah. And there are no people left. It's just wildlife. Cut to Bunny Rabbit. Wham! <laughs> it's just so ridiculous it's like a comedy moment yeah. yeah i was in fits yeah apparently it was the most difficult shot of the movie to get right neil marshall has said oh wow for some reason <laughs> they had to do it like three times or something to get that exploding bunny to look right and okay. hats off to them it's pretty convincing oh yeah <laughs> it's not really much bunny lift though <laughs> oh no <laughs> Just a little bit of tail, I think. And that's our Mooblies. And we're back for the final verdict. Should Doomsday be released from behind the Scottish wall to infect the populace? Or should it be roasted alive and sealed back into the oubliette to be lost forever? Ooh. Both of us had not seen this movie. No. <laughs> what was your final verdict? I do have a sneaky suspicion. Yeah, I can't do that thing that Duncan thought I was really good at, which was building suspense for my final verdict here. Yeah. I was crushingly disappointed. <laughs> I was really looking forward to watching another Neil Marshall movie. I love The Descent. I loved his episodes for Game of Thrones. I think he's doing an amazing job with the Lost in Space series for Netflix. Uh -huh. He's done some amazing work. And I haven't seen his new Hellboy movie, although I know that that didn't fare particularly well in the cinemas, perhaps because the shadow of Guillermo del Toro looms too large over that yes. production. But yeah, I was really excited. I thought, uh, you know, a, a viral contagion post-apocalyptic drama feels like something that, you know, you could relate to at this <laughs> current point in time. Yeah. And it would be an exciting watch. But it's just a random assemblage of bits from other movies that he likes, recreated with his British mates from the pub. Mm -hmm. And the dialogue is risible. The main characters are flat as cardboard. There's no character development. So if you rely just on the thrills and spills of the action, it's terribly edited and you can't enjoy it because you can't really tell what's going on. All of it just slathered over with constant Brian Tyler music that never stops, so there's no atmosphere. I despised every minute of it, and I struggled to stay awake, quite frankly. The only thing that woke me up was the exploding bunny, and that was the only <laughs> thing about this movie that I ended up liking, I'm afraid. How about yeah. you? Uh, I mean, I agree. 100%. There, there were so many missed opportunities for added tension or added suspense, added threat, but they just did not mm. take those opportunities. The characters were 
boring as hell and I didn't feel a single thing every time a character died. And mm. yeah, it it was not enjoyable even as an action movie. The action scenes were nauseating to watch. He had no idea what was going on. Mm. Too many cuts. And the conclusion to the film was deeply anticlimactic and made zero sense at all. So yeah, I don't know. I feel like I watched the movie and I felt nothing. And I don't really remember anything that happened in the movie. I just remember punks and medieval knights. And that's <laughs> my recollection of the entire film. And a big yeah. Fast and Furious Mad Max travel sickness joyride at the end. I don't know. <laughs> I there wasn't a lot in this movie that really stood out uh, as as something I would recommend, uh, apart from maybe the set design and the practical effects and and just the overall look. Of the film was cool, but yeah, there were, there was no substance at all. It was all style and zero substance. Zero characters and uh, very, very forgettable. I think my recommendation would be watch all the movies that it's based on and then watch the Duran Duran music video for Wild Boys and you've pretty much just had a much better time and seen this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, back to Scotland you go. (laughs) So, Conrad, any... Viral outbreaks for our next film. No, fortunately, we will be completely virus-free next time. Although we are reaching a milestone. Can you believe this, Dan? But our next episode will be our 50th. Oh, amazing. How have we made it this far? I don't know. It's pretty amazing. The time has flown by, to be honest. I remember just yesterday we were up to our fifth episode. Yeah. I'm pretty excited about it. Now we're at 50. Yeah. (laughs) That's pretty incredible. Mm. So we thought we would celebrate by looking at a film that is itself celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. So we will be watching the 1970 Giallo film, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Oh, is this... Argento? It is Argento, but it's not one that people tend to talk about. They usually think of Suspiria and Phenomena and Deep Red. Ah, but yes. Bird with a Crystal Plumage is 50 this year, so we thought we would have a little look at it and see what it's about, because I haven't seen it. Have you? No. It's going to be another Double Blind. Double Blind. <laughs> Gosh, two Double Blinds in a row. <laughs> We're very brave. And if you want to be brave and keep up with our episodes, maybe another 50 episodes, uh, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter as Movie Oubliette. If you'd like to email us, we're movie.oubliette at gmail.com. We love hearing from you about what you thought of our latest episode and what you think of our next movie too. And if you want us to love you even more, you can become a (laughs) Patreon patron uh, for a dollar. You get to recommend a movie that we will review in a future episode or for $5 you can get access to all of our bonus stuff. Mm. Loads of goodies on there to enjoy. And if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes or whichever podcast platform you are consuming us on because it does huge wonders for us in terms of expanding our audience. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, It's really interesting looking at our data because we have listeners from all over the world. So give us Mm. your multilingual... (laughs) Ratings, please. Yes, it's always fun to know that we're spreading across the world. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, that's probably oh. not the right thing to say right well. now. <laughs> oh, take care of yourselves out there, people. Yes, wash your hands, isolate yourselves, mm. buy lots of tin food and toilet paper. Stay safe. Listen to podcasts and watch movies. Mm. Yeah. Just stay at home and listen to us for hours. Indeed. (laughs) Ideal. Almost 50 episodes to binge on, so go for it. (laughs) Well, until next time, bye for now. Bye for now. We review the films others tend to forget. Come with us.
the sun, don't run up the movie room yet. We're gonna catch them, we're gonna cook them, and then we're gonna eat them!